Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Claire Kincannon tēnei. We've got something a bit neat for you this week. It's an edit of a podcast produced by the Antarctic Heritage Trust about the conservation of Scott's Terra Nova hut. Antarctic Heritage Trust is a New Zealand-based charity with a mission to conserve, share and encourage the spirit of exploration. And in 2019, Chief Operations Officer Francesca Ethorn travelled to the hut at Cape Evans to speak with some of the conservators there about the work behind saving this iconic piece of polar history. It's a time warp without parallel. You walk into Scott's hut and you are transported to the year 1912 in a way that is quite impossible anywhere else in the world. Everything is there. Commercial product, tinned food, clothing, the bench where Wilson conducted his scientific experiments with the glass test tubes and so on. The bunks, the table, It's no accident that this hut, once the home of Captain Robert Falcon Scott and 24 others at Cape Evans in Antarctica, is, as Sir David Attenborough says, frozen in time. The hut has been painstakingly conserved, along with more than 11,000 items the explorers left behind. Food, clothing, scientific equipment, each item uplifted, taken to a laboratory at nearby Scott Base, carefully conserved, before being returned to the historic site it was taken from. I'm Francesca Ethorn, Chief Operations Officer for New Zealand's Antarctic Heritage Trust. It's our team that conserved this hut and the other expedition bases of some of the most famous Antarctic explorers. Scott's first Antarctic expedition base at Hut Point, Sir Ernest Shackleton's hut at Cape Royds, and Sir Edmund Hillary's hut at Scott Base. We're also in the process of conserving the first expedition base to be built on the continent, that of Norwegian Karsten Borchgrevink and the British Antarctic Expedition from 1898. It is the only example left of humanity's first dwelling on any continent. For more than three years, I learned about and shared the stories of these remarkable spaces without ever having set foot on the ice. That all changed in 2019 when I joined our conservation team to help with the annual programme to keep the historic huts at Ross Island in pristine condition. Scott's hut at Cape Evans is an important base. 
It is the hut that Scott's team built for his second expedition to Antarctica, and from where he, Dr Edward Wilson, Captain Lawrence Oates, and Lieutenants Henry Bowers and Edward Evans launched their bid for the South Pole. The Worst Journey in the World, written by Apsley Cherry Garrard, is perhaps one of the most famous books published from the heroic era of Antarctic exploration. As you know, Scott's polar party made it to the South Pole, but they didn't make it back to their Cape Evans base. Freezing to death, just 11 miles from their next food depot. So here we are at Scott's hut. I'm so excited to go inside. Just before I do, I was reminded about why Scott actually landed here. He wasn't able to land further around at Hut Point, which was, of course, the site of his first expedition, the Discovery. So the Terranova, some years later, had to head further up the coast, and they landed at Cape Evans, which Scott named after his second-in-command, Lieutenant Edward Teddy Evans. One of the things we always want to make sure we do before we go into the hut is clean our shoes on the brushes outside that's so we don't drag in all the scoria and snow and ice that we pick up on our boots when we walk around the site or across from camp so let's go inside the hut I've actually really got to stoop down to get in this doorway I'm not that tall myself at 5'5 five five, but um, these guys Really, apparently, average height was about 5'3", so quite a bit, bit shorter than today's generations. So here we go. Here I am inside Scott's Terranova hut with Al Fastia, Antarctic Heritage Trust's Program Manager for Conservation. Al, I'm so excited to hear some of the stories, both of those early expeditions, but also all of the conservation work that you've done. Because honestly, when you walk in here, it is as if the men just left. Actually, there's been hundreds, if not thousands of hours of work on these huts to make them look this way. As we walked in, you can feel that the microclimate within the building is very dry, and you feel sort of a bit of a spring in the floor. The building feels very, very healthy in my eyes, but uh, back in 2004 and five summer season, it was in very poor condition, so uh, the building felt very damp, it was very cold, and there's ice crystals up on the roof and in the corners on the south corner. So before we did any artifact conservation treatments, it was important to improve the microclimate in the building. Otherwise, we would spend a lot of time conserving the artifacts, put them back into a building in a poor condition, and the metals would start corroding again and the rest. So there's a big job ahead of us. We knew that there was a layer of ice under the, the, uh, the, the floor, and so we had to make a decision, were we going to lift the floor and we knew that that would be a massive job. And it took us several days to roll the lino onto this big roller. And just quickly, Al, what had happened to all the artefacts at this stage? Did you have to move them out or to one side? Because there's 11,000 of them in here. Yep. I imagine you, you had to think carefully about what happened to them. So the first thing we had to do was actually record where the artefacts were, and uh, each artefact was given an individual number. And then at that point, we could move them because we knew we could return them back to the original location. There are a few challenges. Um, one was the wardroom table. And you can see that's about uh, just over a metre across by uh, probably about five metres long. 
what do you do with that? We couldn't get it out of the door. So what we did is we wrapped it in protective blankets and they actually raised it up into the roof cavity and stored it up there. So that's really innovative. And the wardroom table is, of course, in all those classic images of Scott and his men having their midwinter's dinner, was such a central part to the hut. You, you certainly wouldn't want to damage it. You're 100% correct. It's one of the most iconic artefacts in the building and probably at the, sort of the heart and soul of the building. This is where the officers and the scientists would uh, spend a lot of their time eating and discussing their expeditions and their science. So come down here. Past the Ross Sea blubber. Tell me about the blubber quickly because it, it really is quite fascinating looking. It's melting, it's yellow with this hard leathery look on top and it's a big pile. It's what, a couple of metres wide by four metres long? Yeah, that'd be about right. And you can smell it too. You can smell that aroma. Delicious. It, it, it runs right through the hut and it actually gives sort of part of the spirit of place. So the, uh, the blubber was laid down by the Ross Sea Party, and I think it was mainly for running the stove in the hut. They converted the stove to run on blubber, so there's a big hopper on the front. And once they got the stove up and running, they could just cut the blubber up and drop it in. You can see that it turns to a liquid, and that would burn. They also used it for lighting. So a lot of that dark, sooty layer on the hut is from the burning blubber. The Cape Evans Hut is actually the largest of the huts in the Ross Sea region. It was prefabricated in London, and the team took nine days to build it once they arrived on the ice. The result was a place Scott wrote as having a feeling of comfort. The word hut is misleading. Our residence is really a house of considerable size, in every respect the finest that has ever been erected in the polar regions. 50 foot long by 25 wide and 9 foot to the eaves. By those measurements, the hut is 1,250 square feet or just under 117 square metres. It would be home to 25 men on this expedition, the place they slept, cooked, ate and worked. Feeding the team was the job of the expedition's chef, Tom Clissold. Tom gave this interview to Radio New Zealand in 1961, which gives wonderful insight into life in the hut. When you speak of the hut, was there another sleeping quarters nearby? No, there's just one, one, we just had the one hut. You were all in together? Oh, yes, in together. Well, yes, in together. When, when I say in together, we did have a partition of boxes across to separate the scientists from us, as we called it. <laughs> that was our wish that we should be on our own, you see. When I say on our own, that meant uh, uh, Taff Evans, uh, Bill Lashley, uh, Hooper, Kukreen, Kuhan, the two Russian boys and myself. Uh, we thought we'd like to be on our own, so we put a, they put a, a petition of boxes of provisions across, you see. And the other, all the other scientists, well, they were on their own at the other end, that is, the scientists, Scott Wilson and, and uh, Teddy Evans and Ponting. No rivalry, though. Oh, no. Oh, no. Everybody was happy, you know. Oh, yes. Never, never a crossword. And, and, and a strange thing, everybody uh, went out of their way to do any kind of work for the other. I mean, if a man was going outside, he'd take the bucket with him to bring in a bucket of ice, a snow, or a bucket of ice, you see. Or he'd take the, the fuel bucket in a bucket of, to bring in a bucket of coal. Nobody went out empty-handed and come in empty-handed. A tremendous camaraderie. Yes, every one, every one of them was out to help the other. 
Tom's kitchen, or galley, is one of the first spaces you see in the hut, to the right of the door as you walk in, and was where I caught up with conservator Nicola Stewart. Well, Nicola, it's so exciting to be in the hut itself, and the very first space that we come into is the kitchen, which I imagine was at the heart of hut life. Can you tell us a little bit about Clissold, the chef that worked here, and some of the uh, interesting ways that he was able to use the space to make sure those men were fully fed? He was Royal Naval um, Artificer, and then he trained as a chef specifically because he wanted to come on one of these expeditions down to Antarctica, but he was very young at the time. You can see in front of you the stoves that he would have used for cooking, and they would have been going constantly. I'm looking around, and there's still a lot of food here, isn't there? And in fact, I think Antarctic Heritage Trust cares for the largest single can collection in the world, over 8,000 tins, I believe. And a lot of these tins that we're looking at now, they still have food in them, don't they? So they brought a huge range of food down with them. You can really break it up into dried fruit, tinned food and bottled food but they also stopped off at New Zealand on their way down to Antarctica and picked up some fresh food from there as well so up on the left hand side there you can see cheese um, from Geraldine that they picked up and there are also butter boxes from along the bottom of the bulkhead there also from New Zealand and they're probably names that you, you'd recognise like Munger to Perry. So if we walk over here... <laughs> I'm looking at a whole shelf of preserved rhubarb, preserved cabbage, and actually you can see it says pure preserved rhubarb in chunks, no preservative or added materials of any kind, no soaking required. So it sounds like a nice, quick, easy ingredient to add to meals. Will you tell me a little bit about conserving tins like this, what sort of process would you apply to it as an artefact conservator? Well, you can see that a lot of the uh, tins have begun to corrode on the outside and the labels have begun to deteriorate as well. What we do is we look at the artefacts and we decide whether or not the tins are punctured or if they're leaking at all. And it's only then that we would open them up and remove the contents inside. So a lot of these cans actually still have their food products inside them. The cans that we empty... If the products inside are in good condition, like we um, emptied some jam tins the other day and the products were still quite good inside, even though at the bottom it was beginning to rust. We'll take samples of those and note which tins they came from and they're taken back to New Zealand and frozen at Canterbury Museum as a repository really of foods from this period. So in the future, people wanted to research these products, they can do so. One of the reasons Scott's team left so much food in the hut could be explained by this 1961 radio interview with Tom Clissold himself. Scott would, wanted us to eat as much fresh meat as possible and, and that, no matter how it was disguised, he said, don't let them have any tin meat. Keep away from the tin meat and away from the, the, the uh, meat that we've taken down. It may be tainted. So that the you say, what does the seal meat taste like? Well... Seal meat tastes like a, a good old working horse. And penguin, of course, is just like eating a, a very, very tough old wild swan. But the flesh, of course, is black. black. But the, he lays wonderful eggs, you know. We, you get a quantity of eggs from him. These eggs uh, are like an oversized plover's egg. That, uh, when you boil them, the, they're transparent and about the size of a big duck egg. 
with all the beautiful flavour. And because you can, we used to live on those in the in the summertime. You can get as many as you want, you know. You uh, they won't go away from you. I mean, you we just walk up to a penguin and he comes up to shake hands with you, as it were. The same applies to a seal. You can go and sit on a seal seal's back and kill the other one alongside of him. Never move, which is. How did you disguise all these things? Oh, well, they make them up into a galatines and a loaf, a seal loaf, and curried and stewed and things like that. That's something you couldn't really, I couldn't even recognize it myself sometimes. <laughs> did you get compliments or abuse? Oh, no, I never got any abuse. That's one good point, Dan. I never got any abuse. And they ate every damn thing that was given them, you know. Everything that was given them was eaten, you know. And you know, Nicola, when we first came into the hut, and I'm looking around and I see all this food that's left, um, sledging, expedition equipment, scientific equipment, um, the men's everyday needs such as beds and sleeping bags and clothes, there's 11,500 artefacts in here. Now, when you first arrived and you walked in as an artefact conservator and you saw just thousands upon thousands of artefacts, what, what was your reaction? Walking into the hut, I was absolutely blown away. It's just amazing to walk in here and see so much. I really didn't expect to see that. Um, it's like walking into a little microcosm of um, English life, really. You look around and you see all the products that I recognise from my own childhood. And some of them still exist. Some of the companies still exist, like Fry's chocolate and Coleman's um, flowers and, and birds um, products as well and Jay's fluids and then I looked began looking at the artifacts and this was in 2006 before we'd actually started work on conserving the artifacts inside the hut and some of them I looked at and I thought yep I know what I can do to that to treat them but then there were a huge number of artifacts that I looked at and thought I just have no idea what we can do to them Partly because the deterioration was so bad, but also because I knew the artefacts were coming back into the hut. And when you work in conservation, most of the artefacts you're working on are going into nice warm environments in museums and galleries. But the artefacts we were working on here and the objects were coming back into the hut and into this cold climate. Yep, I have to say it's amazing to walk in now and see all those artefacts treated, conserved, documented and stable. Right, well, let's go down to Ponting's dark room. I think it might be my favourite spot in the hut. And let's talk about some of the amazing work that happened there. Ponting was the photographer for Scott's expedition. He documented the men at work and the men relaxing and playing and also the environment and the wildlife as well. We use those photographs um, a lot in conservation just to look at the artifacts in the background. Sometimes we can identify specific artifacts, where they were used and how they were used, so they can go back in the same position. And also looking at what condition they were in then and, and what wear and tear was on them so we can identify how to treat them in the future. It's just such an incredible space in here because there is a lot packed in, like looking up on three layers of shelving and I can see just dozens of bottles of chemicals, everything to assist his photography, I imagine. One of the things that's caught my eye is something called Agfa flashlight. Do you know what that was used for? You've actually picked on one of my favourite artefacts. The photographs that Pontin took were often inside the hut where it would be very dark. And so flashlight is actually very fine magnesium um, aluminium powder, which would have been lit and would have exploded 
and given a bright light that he could then take photographs by. You can see that in some of the photographs that, that Ponton's taken. It looks really well lit. The room looks bright and the, the people look bright. But in the background you can see little candles which were burning, which they had been previously look, using. Also, if you look at some of the photographs he took during the winter of icebergs, they're all lit up and he would use the flash powder for taking those photographs as well, making little pots of the flash powder and putting them around the landscape or the icecape, I guess it is, for make, taking those photographs. And two stories that relate to the dark room that I just love, but actually in relation to the Ross Sea Party, I just thought we might share those. So the first one is if we bend right down, we have a look on the back wall here. There's a, a very special marking behind a flap, so it's a cross, and this was put in here by Reverend Spencer Smith, who was on the Ross Sea Party. He was actually a chaplain, and he came and used... Ponting's dark room space to pray. And I think it's quite poignant being able to see this little cross marked into the wall, particularly because he didn't survive. He sadly was one of the three people that died on the Rossi party. We're kind of crouching down here on the very cold floor, having a look at something that was carved in there over 100 years ago. That's right. And if you walk up um, the hill behind the hut, there is actually a cross which commemorates the men on the Rossi party who died. The other story that I believe you were working on the conservation team was when we found a bunch of photo negatives that hadn't been developed. So you can tell us a little bit about that. That's right. The paper conservator was working on a tin, just looked very ordinary. And inside we found these negatives. And they were in surprisingly good condition and we were able to retrieve the images from them. My understanding was that when we published these images, it actually broke our website. People were just fascinated. So now we're just standing over what's really quite an iconic part of the heart and of course has been photographed many times and this is Scott's cubicle. There's actually a three-pane window here and it's really quite wonderful the way that the light streams in and I've been here at different part times of the day and it, it really does look quite different when you have full sunlight streaming in and lighting up the reindeer sleeping bag of course and the, the boots and various items that are sitting on Scott's shelves now, you asked me when I first came to the hut what was my favourite artefact, and I think one of them is definitely this hot water bottle that I see on the wall over here. So it's black, it looks very much the same as any hot water bottle does today, and it's hanging up with a pair of sea green socks. And I think this really speaks to me because this is my first trip to Antarctica, and you gave me a wonderful piece of advice and said, bring a small hot water bottle because it's absolute luxury at the end of a day out working in the cold to slip it in the bottom of your sleeping bag and to warm your feet up. I have to say it was one of the first artifacts that I noticed when I, I walked into his cubicle. It looks like it's made out of leather, but it is actually made out of an early rubber compound, but it's very hard now. It's like, it is like touching a, a cured leather surface. And just looking at the sleeping bag in front of us, which was um, something that all the men had, of course, and it, it's made of reindeer skin. Is that correct? That's right. It's made of caribou, which was known to be very warm because the fibres are actually hollow. The fur is actually on the inside of the sleeping bag. And there are stories of the, how much those sleeping bags used to shed their hair. And in fact, when we're conserving them now, it's still an issue for us. The hairs seem to go everywhere. So now we're standing in the science laboratory, which is a little bit bigger than Ponting's dark room. Um, 
still a lot of chemicals on the shelf. I'm looking here at Bunsen burners, test tubes, including glass ones, metal ones. I'm looking at a pile of what looks like yellow chalk, but I understand it's sulfur. And there's just so much to take in. And again, we've just got a little light so that we can see everything. Reminds me that this is really the birthplace of science in Antarctica. Often we think about, particularly with Scott's expedition, that it was all about the race to the pole. But actually, these early expeditions, there were a number of serious scientists on the team, and they were down here taking, of course, the very first climate data readings, geology, biology, lots of different fields of science. And that's really what's reflected here in this laboratory. Nick, what can you tell us about all these bottles of chemicals? Yeah, there's probably about 30 or 40 bottles around the walls here on the shelves. Some of them have uh, liquids in them some of them have powders and some of them are just empty some of them have labels on and we can actually identify what's in them from those labels but a lot of them have actually lost their labels or just have the remains of them we needed to identify what was in them before we could make any decisions about how we treated them because obviously they can be a hazard to conservators or um, anyone handling them some of them we were able to identify quite easily. Others, we actually went back to the original photographs that Pontin took of um, the scientists working in this area. And we were able to look um, at the labels which are on them and I actually identify the contents from those themselves. It's just incredible. I think this is one of those spaces where you know, there could be easily 350 or 400 artefacts in this very small space. And it just gives me really good pause to think about what an amazing job the conservators have actually done here. Just lying in my tent, listening to the wind blowing through, staring out at the Barn Glacier, which is just beautiful. It's the most amazing camping spot in the world, I'm sure, here at Cape Evans. I'm due to leave tomorrow, and that's the end of my first proper camping experience, five days out on site, four nights. I have to say I've really enjoyed it. It's been challenging and different and tiring. Um, the wind has a way of just wearing you down, but really what I had to do here was so simple and easy compared to so many people who have come before me, both from Antarctic Heritage Trust, but also the, the early explorers. I'm reading my copy of Worst Journey in the World and really thinking about just the phenomenal things that these early explorers achieved, furthering science, exploration on behalf of humankind, but having all sorts of adventures, satisfying all kinds of curiosities, um, of course, some terrible tragedies along the way as well. And it's really left me with this incredible sense of place. I'm so privileged and, and just so lucky, really, to have had a chance to come here, to have worked and had a little glimpse into what it's like to work on the conservation team and to, to see just um, what an incredible job my colleagues actually do. It's just been truly fantastic. That was an edit of the Antarctic Heritage Trust's podcast, Frozen in Time, Scott's Antarctic Legacy. It included the voices of Chief Operations Officer Francesca Ethorn, Programme Manager Al Fastier and Conservator Nicola Stewart. Archival audio used in this podcast is from the RNZ collection from Natanga Sound and Vision. Scott's voiceover was performed by Julian Anderson and the original music used in this piece are 
On Satin Waters by Hilara Mackendo and The Frozen Wild by Marco Ducretzer, both Antarctic Heritage Trust inspiring explorers. This version was edited by me, Claire Kincannon, and sound engineering at RNZ was by Phil Benj. You can find the Antarctic Heritage Trust's full podcast, explore photos of the hut and artefacts, and listen to additional audio at nzaht.org. Search for Frozen in Time. Or visit our website, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, where we will include photos and links for you to explore. You can also find and follow the Our Changing World podcast on your favourite podcast platform, and you can find us on social media where we are at RNZ Science. Love stories about Antarctica? Then make sure you've listened to our award-winning collection, Voices from Antarctica, an eight-episode series where Alison Balance finds out what it takes to live in and do science in Antarctica. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.